About Empathy is a podcast that focuses on patient, caregiver, and healthcare provider experiences with serious illness. We are now in our third season. Thank you for listening. Week by week, we hope these engaging conversations inspire you to have empathic and compassionate interactions. I'm Dr. Irene Ying, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Dr. Dori Sekaracia, Dr. Giovanna Siriani. We are physicians working in palliative care and psychosocial oncology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center in Toronto. This podcast gives voice to the patient, caregiver, and healthcare provider experience. By reflecting on their stories, we hope to improve our practice and yours. Advanced care planning is a process by which individuals express their healthcare preferences, values, and priorities for the future. Through advanced care planning, individuals may identify a legally appointed substitute decision maker. A substitute decision maker, or SDM, acts on behalf of someone when they are no longer able to make decisions for themselves. The SDM's role is to make decisions that are aligned with that individual's previously expressed wishes. In Ontario, when a patient legally appoints an SDM, this is called a power of attorney for personal care. Even when an advanced care plan is in place, Dr. Maria Maraca learned that unforeseen circumstances can come up. Maria was the power of attorney for her father, Michele, who died one year ago of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Maria is a family physician, as well as an advocate and teacher of advanced care planning. She is here to tell us about her personal experience with her father's changing advanced care plan and how that has shaped her discussions with patients and healthcare workers. Maria, thanks for joining us on About Empathy. Could you tell us about who your father was as a person? Sure. Thank you for having me today. My father was a wonderful person, first and foremost. He was very strong-willed, very independent, motivated, and adventurous. He was an immigrant from Italy, arriving in Canada in his mid-20s, and quickly was able to settle in the new country with his younger brothers and mother. I think because of this, he was always inquisitive about his surroundings and motivated to be successful for his family and his new family, including my brother and I, when we arrived about 10 years later. Your father was diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which is a diagnosis for which there is no cure. So it's just progressive and you kind of know from the start. At what point did he set out to form an advanced care plan? How did that happen? From early on, I can recall my father having discussions with me about his health goals. By default, I was his health guru and (laughs) his almost daily go-to for medical questions and review of medical problems. I can recall from at least him being 65, discussing with me how he'd like to handle his care should he become unfit and unwell later in his life. Oh, even before he was diagnosed? Oh, yes. Okay. And he would bring this up quite often (laughs) at family gatherings. (laughs) Uh, Don't forget, Maria (laughs) is the power of attorney for personal care. (laughs) Wow. That's a little bit unique. Most people (laughs) are not like that. (laughs) Yes. He'd revisit his will often. He was very organized that way and very practical about life and what it could bring and the unexpected nature of health. I think it was also influenced by my mother's passing Mm. at 42 
of ovarian cancer, and he went through a very difficult time with her illness and saw how she unfortunately suffered quite a bit from that. So he was really clear in his mind that he did not want to suffer from illness, and he wanted to try to avoid that at all cost. So he'd bring it up and he'd say, remember, Maria's the one, and I don't want to extend my life if I can't be the vibrant self that I am. Mm -hmm. He still worked up until he was admitted to hospital part-time. He had a very active social life. He'd travel quite frequently. He had a large garden he took care of in the summer and was very involved in caring for my children as well. So the idea of him being dependent on others or unable to enjoy these pieces of life would be not looked on as a good sort of quality of life for him. You know, it was very superficial in that I don't want to be on a life support Mm -hmm. machine. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be unable to speak to you and just be fed and just lie here, basically. Mm -hmm. It was sort of all or nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. Not really the in-between was never discussed. The harder stuff. So it always seemed like it was straightforward. I knew what to do. We would figure it out. If, you know, he was not going to survive in some circumstance because, you know, he had a heart attack, we wouldn't continue life support. We never sort of thought about Mm -hmm. these other pieces Mm -hmm. until he was diagnosed with this disease. And I have to say, even after that, be it just the daughter in me, I didn't think to also have those discussions about what that disease could bring. I just kind of went with the flow, but I didn't look forward to think about if this happens all those in-between pieces as we're talking about, Mm -hmm. how would we manage those different levels of health and not just the truly alive and Mm -hmm. (laughs) or not. I was wondering a little bit about being named power of attorney for personal care. That's a pretty big responsibility. So at the time, how did you feel about being put in that role? I'm assuming he always went to you because you're the main medical person in the family. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And with my dad, it wasn't even really a discussion. (laughs) (laughs) How did you feel? Did you feel like there was pressure or did you feel like, oh yeah, that's a pretty natural? I thought it was natural actually. And I thought that would be, you know, something I would be happy to do to make sure that he was cared for with his wishes in mind. Because having been exposed to other situations as a physician Mm -hmm. where I would encounter families potentially squabbling over the right care for their parent and not always keeping the wishes in mind, I thought I would be certain to carry that wish uh, despite what my brother or other family members might bring into Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. discussion. Mm -hmm. So I felt good about that. I felt in control that I would make the right decisions for him. And then speaking to what you were saying, Maria, about the Mm in-betweens. So what was that like? What were some of the in-between decisions that were challenging? Mm -hmm. As you mentioned with the fibrosis, the IPF diagnosis, the only cure would be a lung transplant. And when he deteriorated and was hospitalized, he was able to get a transplant sort of at the last real minute after significant deterioration. So it was a very rocky road after transplant, but he survived and it was a long process to get back on his feet. So the in-betweens were the complications that arose as a result of transplant. So he was diagnosed with kidney failure because of his rapid deterioration before the transplant and needed dialysis. Before the transplant, the word dialysis was 
a big no no mm-hmm. and a big fear. And I think we had also had a discussion about if he ever needed dialysis, that would be a, absolutely a no go. So now you're faced with another chance at life with a transplant and a potential new life, albeit very different. Is dialysis okay in light of the new circumstance? Mm-hmm. It wasn't that he didn't have IPF and he had kidney failure and dialysis would extend his life, you know, by maybe 10 years without this disease. This is a completely different situation and a scenario which we did not discuss. So at the time, you know, I brought it up to him with the physicians. At first he was not in agreement. Mm -hmm. And when we sort of realized that this could be temporary and his kidneys might improve over time, Maybe it's okay that we use dialysis for a short period of time to get him over this hump and potentially survive. Without it, he would die. But that's not something that he would have anticipated or you would have anticipated as a family. So trying to navigate the post-transplant complications and how that would impact him and what he was willing to take on as a treatment versus not. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone would have anticipated that. No, and I almost was upset, I have to say, with the transplant process because I felt in some ways that I wasn't prepared Mm. for what it could bring. I knew those complications were a part of the process, but I wish I had somebody to say, these may happen. And if they happen, mm-hmm. are you okay with that? Mm-hmm. Because many times he was not well enough to make those decisions. And I was the one having team discussions with the ICU staff. And the most notable situation was when he actually coded one day. And we didn't know what happened, but he had an arrest. And I was present and I called a code blue. I just asked for help. And they were able to revive him and he survived, but it was a huge step back. Weeks later, he looked at me and actually was upset that I made that call. And he told me that we had had these discussions and why did I let them? That's so hard. Yeah. That's very hard. And I, you know, was tearful and I told him that I thought I was acting in his best interest at the time for the situation we were dealing with. Again, he had this second chance. I didn't know what was happening. It was very sudden. He didn't say, if I have the transplant and my heart stops, I don't want you to revive (laughs) me. Here we are thinking about going to rehab soon, and he has this unexpected arrest. So that was a huge in-between decision where, you know, nobody would have anticipated that happening. It was very unfortunate and, you know, a big setback and another reason why he didn't survive in the end because it brought on more complications. But how could you ever predict that? And how could anyone in that moment make the decision? But that's something I've had to sort Mm -hmm. of live with that. Did I make the right decision? Did I not? Did he suffer afterward? Was it the right call? Because he did have another chance to continue. And we did have, you know, four more months together. But those unanticipated Mm. complications and moments are hard to deal with. Mm -hmm. 
It sounds like your dad, what you said earlier, really valued a quality of life, mm-hmm. you know, and when you're in that situation of, is my decision now going to eventually get him some quality of life? That must be so difficult because what I heard when you told this story is that you did what your dad wanted, which was try to get him that quality of life that he went through a transplant. He obviously made that decision because he thought, I can get some quality of life. You know, at that moment, that must be so challenging. Mm -hmm. You changed how you can impart that knowledge you now have that, you know, when you go from the book teaching of doing advanced care planning or being a substitute decision maker, how has that changed what you can impart to us as colleagues and to your learners? And to patients, too. Yeah, and definitely to patients. You know, I don't know if it's feasible, but almost having these discussions at a much more granular level, okay, instead of the obvious ones that we think about being artificially, you know, on a respirator or CPR, right? But especially when you know that somebody is going to undergo a very risky procedure, like a transplant. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I think. I would have benefited from the transplant team sitting me down and saying, okay, you know all the complications. These XYZ issues often arise, or they may arise. And even though they're small risk, they may arise. How about you have these discussions with your family on how you might deal with them? Kidney failure is common. Are you okay to have dialysis? My dad heard all those potential risks, but he wanted to live so badly that he thought, I'm just going to go for this because otherwise I die. So this is the only chance. Right. So I kept that in mind. He really wanted to live. Right. I couldn't imagine just saying, no, he doesn't want CPR. Let him go. This is a completely different situation. Mm-hmm. He wasn't yep. dying. He right. wasn't sick. And I would try to extend his life mm-hmm. by two weeks. He could have died peacefully. And here I am. No, don't go yet. This was a completely different Mm -hmm. situation. So having those discussions at maybe a more granular level and maybe very disease specific. Mm -hmm. So you have CHF. These are the situations patients encounter. Are you ready for these? And if they arise, how would you like those decisions to be made Mm -hmm. for you? I still think, though, it will never be so black and white. And that's what I've learned. I agree. I had these discussions with learners and with caregivers and people who teach advanced care planning. And we make it sound so black and white and it's so easy and set it up. I think also imparting that lesson that it will never be as much Mm -hmm. as we try, but it's better to have some idea in mind and have those discussions. It's better than not having them. Right. Mm -hmm. But no, it's not easy. Mm -hmm even if you feel completely prepared, because I thought I was prepared. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Maria, we always end our podcast, and you kind of touched on this a little bit. We like to finish our podcast with the question, what do you wish healthcare professionals knew about your experience? If you would start a statement with, if only they knew, what would you say? If only they knew to involve as many people around them as possible to help support them in those decisions. Mm. Because I think what really helped me was that I really sought out the opinion and support of the healthcare team as the daughter and not the physician. So I actually would try to set up appointments with the ICU staff 
or little huddles on the side after the team meetings with my dad privately to ask them, what do you think is going on? Mm -hmm. Do you think he will survive? Should we continue treating his infections? Should we continue the dialysis? Because, you know, when you're in that situation, you're hopeful, everybody's talking about his improvement and some complications, but it might not be till weeks later or maybe a month later where they say, you know what, I don't think he will survive or I don't think we should continue because his kidneys are failing anyway. So I really sought out their opinion and I would ask them, I, I would tell them who my dad is that he wants to go home and he wants to walk and he wants to eat and he wants to be able to take care of himself. Do you think he can do that? And mm -hmm. I know that's a big question to ask. It's a long-winded answer to say, ensuring the healthcare team knew who my father was mm -hmm. all along, knowing what his wishes were and his anticipated outcome mm -hmm. and asking them for help in supporting my decisions mm. so that I didn't feel after that the ICU doc didn't think dialysis would be beneficial, but I chose to go forth in hopes he would get home. So it was a really big collective decision on behalf of my dad, but always bringing it mm. back to what they saw my dad's wishes as. And so I think it's really valuable to impart that image and history of the patient that they're dealing with, mm -hmm. their wishes what their goals of life were, and then having them support you along the way with the decisions, not only the healthcare workers, but your family. So mm -hmm. although I was a power of attorney for personal care, I would also schedule meetings with my family mm -hmm. and just say, this is what we're faced with. I think we should do this. Do you think that's in line with what he mm -hmm. wanted? Thankfully, my family was very supportive and we were always in agreement, but having them on my side too and talking it out with them was often very helpful. Mm. So I didn't ever feel completely alone in making the decisions. I felt supported by the healthcare team and by my family. But I have to say, you have to seek that out yourself. Mm. It doesn't mm. always happen. Mm. It can be easy to fall into the trap of feeling like you're making the decisions alone. So schedule the meetings, ask for help, let everybody know who your loved one mm. and who that patient used to mm. be and wants to be again. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's great advice yeah. for patients, for caregivers, and for healthcare providers. Yeah. That healthcare providers have to seek out that story. What do they value? If their healthcare provider is not seeking it out, patients and caregivers need to voice it. Mm -hmm. That's great advice. Maria, thank you so much yeah. for joining us today and sharing your father's story. Yes, it's my thank pleasure. You. Thank you. I hope it helps. You're listening to About Empathy. We're going to take a short break to tell you about how the show is supported, and we'll be right back. The third season of About Empathy has been funded through donations to the palliative care team by the Sunnybrook Foundation. Sunnybrook is committed to patient engagement and care. By partnering with Sunnybrook, we hope that this podcast embeds patient and family experiences in all teaching and learning. To learn more about the education initiatives at Sunnybrook, visit sunnybrook.ca. About Empathy is recorded at Wellspring. Wellspring Cancer Support Foundation is a network of community-based support centers offering professionally-led programs and services to help people living with cancer and those who care for them. No referral is necessary, and Wellspring programs are offered free of charge. During the pandemic, all programs are available as online support groups, webinars, or as telephone-based supports via Well on the web. Visit wellspring.ca to find a center location near you or to access national online programming. Welcome back to About Empathy. 
Dory and Giovanna. So we just had, I thought, an incredible discussion with Maria about her experiences advocating for her father. I think one of the thoughts that popped into my mind was how difficult it was for her to take on that power of attorney role for her father. And it's so interesting because I think that a lot of people look at the power of attorney role as being sort of something that they would want to do, right? I know a lot of times when my patients name a power of attorney, they name all their children because they don't want anyone to feel left out, but they don't really realize what a isolating and difficult role that can be. I know personally, my parents have told me that they want me to be their power of attorney if something were to happen to them. And even as a palliative care physician, or maybe because I'm a palliative care physician, I'm like, oh, I don't know if I really want to take on this role. I realize like I'm really probably well suited for it. But I mean, I think that's how much I've seen how challenging it can be to take on that role. I'm not sure Maria saw it as difficult. I think she described it as natural yes, for her. Yes. But I think in describing her experiences, her experiences were really just heart-wrenching. And the decisions that she had to make, even though she had support from her family and from healthcare providers, those were incredibly difficult decisions. But I think she she saw that role as natural for her. Mm-hmm. But I think your point is well taken, that it's not something to consider lightly because there's a lot of challenges that people can encounter. I don't think Maria's situation was isolating, but I think for others, it would definitely be. Yes. I think when I talk to patients and I coach them into choosing Mm. an appropriate substitute decision maker, I talk about the things that you would feel are obvious, like they are, you know, easily reachable, Mm. but we don't really talk as often about the other things such as they have to be a good advocate, right? They have to be willing to try to reach out to the physicians and the healthcare Mm. team, and they need to be sort of able to make really emotional decisions. Mm. I think that part doesn't come out as often when we're talking Mm. about who we want in that role. Mm. And they have to know you well. Mm -hmm. And they have to be willing to engage with you in challenging decision making and be willing to hear about what could potentially happen with your illness. Yes. If they say, oh, we'll talk about it when it comes. That's a flag. (laughs) That's a red flag. (laughs) I think even when it's done perfectly the Mm. way we teach it, it's still so difficult because we had someone whose father talked to her about it. They had open discussions. She was able to make the healthcare team know who this person was, what his goals of care were. And as you mentioned before, Irene, goals of life, such a great comment that she made. Mm -hmm. But she made an important point about it's not black and white. So Mm. even when you know all that, how challenging it can be in the moment because you can't foresee every single Mm -hmm. possibility. Mm -hmm. And you're always making your very best guess at a moment in time, you know, and of course, hindsight, we all go back and we think, should I have done this? Should I have done that? I think she was able to tell us how hard it can be, even when you do all the things we Mm -hmm. talk about and teach about. Yes. It's not so black and white as someone did something right, someone did something wrong. But if you think about textbook, what did they do right? They did everything right. Talking about advanced care plans when you're not even sick and Mm -hmm. you're talking about your priorities and your values and what does life look like? What does a good life look like? But then when faced with a medically complex situation, it's incredibly difficult. There are so many decision points. That decision tree gets bigger and bigger and bigger over time. And, you know, it it just makes the decision making so much more challenging. I think that's a good 
takeaway point is Mm -hmm. it's not so black and white when it comes to advanced care planning because life is not straightforward or black or white. I mean, a lot of people sell advanced care planning as this panacea Mm. for a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But I think we realize, I mean, this has been going on for, I think, two decades, maybe even Mm. longer. And what we realize now is there's a gap between advanced care planning. You can do perfect advanced care Mm -hmm. planning, but there's always a human element. Yep. And the medical element that gets in the way. One is that we're really bad at predicting ahead of time what would be an acceptable quality of life for us, right? Like Maria mentioned dialysis as an example for her father where he was like, no, 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 I would never want that. But I think a lot of people don't realize what dialysis necessarily encompasses. Like in the palliative care realm, there's actually a lot of palliative benefits to dialysis too, right? Like in terms of if you have fluid in your lungs because you can't get it out of your body, It might help you to feel more comfortable. And so I think that she talked about it might have been a little bit more helpful to be granular Mm -hmm. for the healthcare team to tell them, okay, this might happen. What do you want in this situation? And what do you want in this situation? I would have to say I partially agree with Maria. I think that being able to prognosticate, and by that I don't mean talking about a timeline. Mm -hmm. By that I mean painting a picture kind of foreseeing what might come would help them prepare better. But I try to avoid when I'm talking to patients and families about taking a checkbox approach to things Mm -hmm. like, would you want this or would you want this or would you want this? Rather, I like to do what she encouraged, which is find out as much as you can about the person and what's quality of life for them. And then I will frame my recommendations around treatments like dialysis or, you know, going to the ICU for blood pressure support around those goals. How do you guys feel about that? What's your approach been? I agree with you. I think it's challenging to be granular. I think in her specific situation, I think where she would have benefited was more discussion about prognostication, like you said, not in terms of length of survival, but more so what to expect with Mm -hmm. idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis or what to expect post-transplant. What are the complications that could happen? What are those scenarios? And then talking a little bit more about those scenarios. I agree with you. I think the most important thing that she talked about was what her father's values were and what his quality of life was. And so in my advanced care planning conversations that I document, generally that part about values and what does quality of life look like, I think that's the big part of that conversation. Because then you can use that in the future, no matter what medical circumstance comes up, you can guide or frame that decision-making around those values. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think always checking in that that quality of life is still what the patient wants because our values can change or our perspective on what that would look like can change. Being an Italian daughter of a Italian dad who did die in an ICU what you think one day might not be Mm -hmm. the reality the next day and Mm -hmm. that it's important to tell our patients and our families that this is an ongoing conversation. Mm. It's not a one-time, like you said, Irene, checking off the boxes. It's not a list and then, oh, now it's done. We never have to look Mm. at that again. I think that's such a common misconception, right? Mm -hmm. I I think so. We've had the discussion Mm -hmm. 
And then the other thing is, you know, when we talk about goals of care, a lot of times people go straight to the checkboxes, code status, resuscitation, intubation, yes or no. But when we talk to families about goals of care, what's really most meaningful, I loved Maria's use of the term goals of life, Mm -hmm. because I think that really encompasses what we're talking about. Is it to be comfortable? Is it to try to live as long as possible, Mm. no matter what the circumstances? Is it to try to make it to, you know, your daughter's wedding in two months? What are your goals of life? What are you trying Mm -hmm. to achieve? And then centering your recommendations around the treatment decisions Mm -hmm. around those wishes. And that even when you respect all of that, the outcome may not be what everyone Mm -hmm. hoped for. You have respected that person's goals. You've been the best substitute decision maker ever, but we don't always get the outcome that we would want for Mm -hmm. our loved ones. And that's hard. We need time to process that Mm -hmm. loss. A lot of great stuff to unpack there. I'm really grateful she took the time to speak to us. she was great. Mm -hmm. We hope the story that you heard today has inspired you to engage in compassionate, authentic, and empathic interactions. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Subscribe to About Empathy on Apple Podcasts or listen on our website, aboutempathy.com. When you subscribe and rate our podcast, it helps others find us. The episode will be added to your app when we publish. Please share our podcast with family, friends, colleagues, and health professionals. You can find the notes from today's episode and information about our show on the website. About Empathy is a Kickback Productions podcast hosted by Giovanna Siriani, Dori Sakaracha, and Irene Yang. Recorded and produced by Jackie Skinner, with additional production and writing by Laura Takahashi. Music by Jerry Finn and Jackie Skinner. The podcast is recorded on-site at Wellspring and funded by the Sunnybrook Foundation at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre. Visit us at aboutempathy.com.